Ecclesiastes chapter 4, and we're reading verses 1 to 12. <clears throat> Again I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of their oppressors, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead, who had already died, were happier than the living who were still alive. But better than both is the one who has never been born, who has, never, who has not seen the evil that is done under the sun. And I saw that all toil and all achievement spring from one person's envy of another. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. Better one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone. He had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his toil. Yet his eyes were not content with his wealth. For whom am I toiling? he asked. And why am I depriving myself of enjoyment? This too is meaningless. A miserable business. Two are better than one, because they have a good return for their labour. If either of them falls down, one could help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. so much Lydia for reading and if you are following along do keep it open or switched on in front of you we're going to be looking at that over the next few minutes. Uh, my name is Morris I'm one of the leaders here I'll be opening that up to us today I'm just going to pray before we start let's pray together. Lord we thank you for your words which speak truth and help us face up to reality even when that is difficult and we thank you that in the difficulty of life you give us real comfort and we pray you would help us see and understand that today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, someone reminded me this week of a Bible study, which is a small group of Christians who meet to discuss the Bible. We have lots of those running at Christchurch. Someone reminded me this week of one that I was in, where we were discussing the command, very clear command of Jesus, that Christians should love their enemies. And we were having that discussion in the group, and the leader of the group said, how does this apply to your life? So what will it mean for you to love your enemies? And someone in the group actually said, well, it doesn't really apply to me in my life, because I don't have toxic people in my life, I just have not. <laughs> well, when someone reminded me of that story, I went on an internet rabbit hole, uh, Wednesday morning in the library, Googling and trying to find out what is meant by a toxic person. Well, you get a lot of Britney Spears related results. Another round of And eventually, I found myself on some mental health websites, websites advising people how to have better mental health. And sometimes when people were using the word toxic, they are using 
and the word about people who are violent or insulting or cruel or manipulative and they're ruining your life and you have to find a way to stop them doing that. Sometimes that's what people are saying. But sometimes then there is this wider category of saying someone is toxic if they don't respect your boundaries. Someone is toxic if they don't respect your boundaries. That is basically, isn't it, just someone who doesn't do what you would prefer them to do. So, I've said, this is what I would prefer from your behaviour, and you have crossed it. It's just someone saying, I'm not going to relate to you in the way that you have decided I should. And again, some of these mental health websites were saying, there is a solution to that, cut them out. Now, of course, there will be extreme cases and maybe that's happened to you. Something really bad has happened to you and the only way to deal with that person is to stop contacting them. But that's become a lot wider for us today, which is basically saying, you decide yourself what's right behaviour, you decide whether someone matches up to that, and if they don't, don't have them in your life. And if that's your attitude, then my Bible study participant was right. Jesus' command to love your enemies does not apply because you cut them out. In our world today, people use words like solidarity, community, cohesion, inclusion. But the bottom line is our thoughts are mostly of ourselves. We're actually taught it's morally good to put yourself in the middle and judge other people about whether they deserve to be in your life. Well, Ecclesiastes, this book of Old Testament wisdom, so far um, I've been having discussions with people who've been finding it a little bit depressing. What he said so far are things like, we have a desire to really leave a mark on the world, but we're not going to. We're stressing out in life trying to achieve things, but whatever you achieve in the end, it won't really matter. You might build something really, really great, but in the end you'll die, so you can't take it with you. And last week, no matter how much you try and manipulate life to get your own gain and your own happiness and your own benefit, the truth is life is just full of seasons of joy and sorrow that you don't control. Now we did get some glimmers of hope last week. The writer says there is joy in just doing what God has for you to do today. There's actually freedom in that. You don't have to control everything. You can just do what he has for you today. You can stop chasing the wind. And this week he's going to give us some more hope. He's going to say, life under the sun can feel like it's uh, not going anywhere. You're not leaving a mark and that you're not significant, but you can make it better if you move yourself out of the centre of your thoughts. Now to be clear, he's not going to say, as the Bible does say in other places, you should love other people because it would be better to do that morally, or because it honours God to love others more than yourself. That will be true, he will get to that later actually. But today he's going to say, the writer, your life in the world will be better you will experience freedom from chasing the wind 
if you invite people in instead of keeping them out. So, here's the first thing that we see. Work on the screen. My pointer's not working any, so if you could just move them on for me, that would be great. Uh, aloneness kills life. He begins chapter 4, looking around the world, the world under the sun, as he calls it, and he says, it's full of oppression. He says, the truth about life under the sun is that power is always on the side of people who are going to abuse it. People with power nearly always use it to crush other people. They put themselves first, and so they hurt others. And worse than that, he says in verse 1, the oppressed have no comforters. The, the phrase there, no comforter, literally means no one to breathe with them. It's like the oppressed are crushed, and no one will even just sit beside them. So far the writer has talked about wickedness generally. He said the world is full of bad stuff. But now he's spending a moment zooming in on the actual experience of real oppressed people and the fact that when they're oppressed, they're really alone. And doing this is like staring into the sun. It burns your eyes. But the writer can't really get a sense of what life is really like in this world without spending some moments not just saying, yes, the world's full of wickedness, but considering actual oppressed people and how so often, when power is used against them, everybody else runs away and leaves them alone. Something I was reading to prepare for this talk said that you should do for a moment, therefore, what the writer is doing. Really consider some actually terribly oppressed people and how alone they are. So I went on the BBC website, started reading some stories just from there on one day of the week, this week, reading about families in Israel whose child children are hostages and how alone and helpless they feel. Of a man in Gaza whose whole family was killed in an airstrike in the fall of war, he's left alone, no one to breathe with him in his pain. People going to prison because they tortured a child to death. I could go on, but it's unbearable. He says, the writer, you consider oppression and the aloneness that comes with it. He actually says something very shocking in 2 and 3. He says, if you spend any time really looking at that, you'll think it would be better to be dead than alive. And it would be best not to have been born at all, because you never would have experienced it. I'm going to pause there for a moment. You cannot consider all the oppressed people in the world all the time. Our minds are too limited for that. <clears throat> That's why we had the advice in chapter 3 to focus on the good you are able to do in this moment. And I do want to say, I know there are people in this congregation who feel so weighed down by the darkness of the world they actually do really feel in their hearts what he expresses here. It would be better to be dead than be alive. And I think this passage is here to say, listen, if you feel that sometimes because of everything going on in the world, 
It's not that you're a freak or weird. That's the nature of what looking at reality is like. But he doesn't stop at verse 3, because he doesn't end his life. And he is saying, if you feel that way, haunted and tortured by those thoughts of helplessness or self-hatred, and you feel sometimes like it would be better to be dead, he says in chapter 4, you're wrong. There is a way to live in this world full of oppression. That's some people. Most of us, I think, need to reflect that while we are merrily going along in life, just putting ourselves in the middle and doing what's best for us, cutting off toxic people, or using whatever power we have for ourselves to get what we want, we only do that because we never stare at the type of world that is making. If we all just live for ourselves, people end up oppressed and nobody will be there to help them. Oppression happens because people think that they are the most important. And as long as we think that's fine, oppressed people will be alone. If you think it can't get worse than that, it's about to. Here's his next comment in verse 4. There's one great engine of everything everyone does in the world, he says. The toil and achievement, which just means good and just work. So even good things that happen in the world, work people do that has good outcomes, even that, he says, is driven by envy. By jealousy. The great driver of everything that happens in the world is people wanting what other people have. Even good outcomes come from that. I've talked to someone recently who works at a very senior level in a world famous charity that you would have heard of that does amazing work all around the world. And he was telling me that sometimes he leaves meetings with other very senior people and he thinks, oh, we had a good discussion, we made some progress. And then he gets emails from people in the meeting saying, I actually didn't really feel very respected in that meeting. I didn't find that meeting a very safe environment to be myself. I think before I talked to him, I imagined all those people who work for charities are driven by a driving need to help the world's poor. That's why they're doing it. But what really drives them at a personal level? They want to be respected and significant and treated the same way as the other important people in the meeting. It was interesting when I was talking to him, I said, do you not just want to say, come on guys, Let's focus on the beneficiaries. He thought I could do that, but it wouldn't work. So the, well, I consider it my job to channel their self-regard to get them to do the things that need to be done. He's not saying I can teach them not to be envious. He's saying I just need to like motivate them by envy to do good things. Every marketing thing that you read or see is saying to you, isn't it? You see people in adverts. And it's saying to you, your life would be better like theirs. 
if you had this thing. It's a huge engine of how everything works. But he says this too is meaningless, a vapor. Their great works don't show how great they are. People constantly driven by envy never get what they want. But this great system where people oppress each other and envy what others have, that drives everything. He says there are two outcomes to this, two attitudes that people take when they realize this and they live in the world. The first one is verse five, to be lazy. Fools fold their hands and ruin themselves. He basically says, if you constantly center yourself and you're full of envy and you want to get what you want, one reaction you can have is like, I'm not doing anything for anyone. I'm going to sit here and do what I want. Laziness. And he says, um, he uses this phrase, it's translated in our uh, Bible, ruin themselves. The phrase is actually, eat themselves. He's saying laziness, you can just do what you want for a while, but in the end, you'll end up consuming yourself. I think the picture there is, one, you won't have anything to eat if you're lazy, so you'll have to eat yourself. But I think he's also saying, people who do nothing end up with their lives getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. They eat themselves. The less you do, the less you want to do, you eat up your own life. The other extreme to this is this, uh, this envy-driven society is verse 6. A constant wanting more, filling both your hands all the time with everything you can get, but as he says, without any tranquility. We all know people like that, don't we? Someone who keeps acquiring things, doing more, active all the time, but they never experience any peace. There's nothing wrong with having a busy and full life. But if you're always doing and never experiencing tranquility, contentment, a happy relationship with God, then what it exposes is that you're buying into this great driver of endless peaceless activity, of envy of other people. And that's why the great call of this book is to enjoy this moment now as a gift from God, rather than always planning for what you will get, what you will do next. There are people I know who for years say things like, I should be more involved in church. I should spend more time with my children. I should have some rest, but I just need to get this new job. I just need to send this bit higher. I just need to teach you something more. And that season of just needing that never ends. There's never tranquility if you're always trying to fill those hands. And so his call is to say, be happy with what you can hold in one hand. What you've got in the moment, enjoy that. Because with the possibility of being content with what you have, is the possibility of focusing on other people. It's the second big thing we see in this passage. I'm going to ask people at the back to move it on because this is totally died. Yeah, keep going. Togetherness brings life in this moment. The writer tells us a story in verse 7 about a man who is working all the time, he has no end to his toil. 
But in the end, Miss Hodge said, what was the point of getting more and more if I have no one to share it with? Now, getting stuff can be a blessing to other people. That's the means. But it's become the end, just getting stuff. And in his honest moment, the man in this story says, what is the point of getting all this without someone to share it with? It's meaningless, as we haven't translated. I love this. It's a miserable business. Miserable business. Always getting stuck and always feeling alone. It's not just uh, someone who works and therefore doesn't have someone. That's the story. I think it's possible to be married and be this man or this woman. Possible to have children and be this man or this woman. The point of getting stuff has gone beyond being able to share with people. The point is getting stuff. Blatant materialism, just wanting more and more for the sake of wanting it, it's not really a fashion art. It was quite big in the 80s, if any of you were alive then. There was a lot of like, greed is good in the 80s and Thatcherism and all that. We're a bit more sort of like, oh no, mustn't say that now. Uh, can't say greed is good. But what we do is, like the person in my Bible study, we construct our life, our boundaries, and my project is to have the life that I want. And other people, even if I'm married to them, or they're my child, or they're my friends, if they impinge, if they get in the way of my project, I will be very upset. And the thing I note about people who live that way, when you're encouraged to live, remember all the mental health websites telling us to have strong boundaries, people who live that way tend to be miserable. What is the point of curating this exact life that you want if the cost is keeping everybody out? People are miserable. I've got to say, it's a temptation for me. Sometimes other people are too much for me. I think I'll have very strong boundaries and build my castle here and not let them ruin it. But people who live that way, and I find this myself, when you have the moments to yourself, often think, hmm, do it, do it, do it, forward. Rather, he says, doing things with other people is better. Do you see? He said, if you get into trouble, you'll have someone to help. If you have someone to hug, you'll stay warm. Very practical. And if someone attacks you, you can back each other up. He's not particularly, I think, talking about marriage here, because the last verse is saying three is even better than two, and that's not something we believe about marriage. <laughs> He's saying, build a network of committed relationships. The type of relationship where if you're in trouble, you would have help. Or if that person was in trouble, you would help them. You need to be close enough to keep each other warm. How are you if the end of church is not going to create that type of closeness? You need to know each other well enough that you will have someone in your corner if someone else attacks you. Not just one person, but more than one. Now remember, he's not saying it's morally good to have a self-giving, open relationships like that. Although I think the Bible does say that elsewhere. He's saying it's better for you. Um, 
Man knows looking at all this stuff about mental health. I can only really comment on what I see in men. That's more you know, what I see. I see a lot of men from this story. Men who work a lot. They're not unfriendly people. But they wouldn't have the people they needed if they were in trouble. And trouble, as Ecclesiastes tells us, eventually comes. And the consequences of not having anyone to help are very, very bad. There are a lot of married men whose only friend is their wife. And I guess if that's a functional, happy relationship, I guess that's better. But if you're totally depending on your wife to be your only friend, I imagine that's not going to be a functional relationship for very long. And when we try and encourage people, encourage myself, to form these type of friendships, people say, I don't have time. And what they usually mean is, I am working. It's just a man from the story. Sometimes it is the earlier fault, you know, I just don't want anyone else in my life. But often, it's I've filled my life with other things that I think will gain to me, and so I don't have time to connect with people. I end up in my man cave, with no friends I can get home from. If I fell down, no one would know. If I got attacked, no one would be close enough to help. If, we, if you are living in middle class culture, as I've grown up in, it's taken us to trump card. But my work. Honestly, if it really is your work stopping you having those type of friendships, if that is the honest truth, you need to consider different work. If it's your choices, you need to consider different choices. Because Ecclesiastes says, aloneness destroys life. Togetherness brings life in the moment. That's it. That's what chapter 4 says. You may be saying, okay, writer of Ecclesiastes, but it's not quite as simple as that, is it? As we've been looking at Ecclesiastes together as a staff team to get ready for these sermons, someone said, in what sense is this not just mindfulness? Have you recommended mindfulness? Ecclesiastes feels a bit like mindfulness. Just enjoy this moment and sit with it. And if you keep being given, I think lots of us in our workplaces are constantly given mindfulness, mindlessness, <laughs> are constantly given mindfulness as a solution to all problems. It's like overworked and underpaid, try mindfulness. Why might we try anymore? So how is this not just more of that? Live in the moment. Well, I think it's this. Life under the sun in Ecclesiastes is basically saying, we all live here. There are certain things built into creation that you'd be wise to take into account. And this is just a truth that's built into every part of creation. You weren't meant to go it alone, and you weren't meant to depend fully on one other person. But life isn't simple as that. I have an unwise heart, and the people around me have unwise hearts, and we're all bent towards choosing what's bad for us. Setting your own boundaries just by yourself, working on what boundaries do I need, and then setting them, 
That is not good advice for people who have unwise hearts. There is more than the rules of creation at work in the world. There is the gospel, the message about Jesus, where God reaches down and breaks the pattern of creation to help us. And so he says to me, with my bad heart making bad decisions, more than just, well, learn to be wise. He says, I love you where you are. If you trust Jesus, I will come into your life and untwist your twisted heart. Let me intervene in your life. In a sense, we can say, we have much more than the writer of Ecclesiastes to work with. He could see the wisdom of God's law. He could see the mess that's caused by ignoring it. He could try and obey the law. That's it. But if you turn and trust in Jesus, you're welcoming God's Holy Spirit into your life. The Bible talks in very extreme terms about you're actually killing your own life and starting a new life. And that enables you, as you walk with him, to begin choosing wisely. You can see wisdom that would call you out of yourself. And where your heart, your unwise heart might say, oh, I don't want to risk that. God's Spirit assures you that you're loved, you're safe, you're in God's family. Step into risk. And what you'll find in a functioning church where God's Holy Spirit is at work is a community of people also committed to trying that. You know, if you're working all the time to get more money, Jesus has some very good advice to break, break that hold on you. It's very simple but very good advice. He says, give your money away. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. If it's all in your bank account and you're trying to save up more and more and more, oh, your heart will be very invested in yourself. Give it away. It's sort of hard to do, isn't it? Unless God's overflowing Holy Spirit is living in you, making you a generous person. Or maybe you think about relationships and you've heard all I've said today and you've said the thing is, it's too hard. I've tried and it doesn't work. And if we just had wisdom, that would be it. You could say, I get two people need to keep each other warm, but the person I cuddled up to stabbed me in the back, so I'm done. But the picture the Bible gives us of a Christian is of an overflowing cup. You know, if a cup is full of water and you don't want to tip the cup, I was going to say there's two ways to get water out of the cup without tipping it. One is you can put holes in it and just drain the cup of water. The New Testament talks more about Christians being cups full of stuff and more and more and more being poured in so it overflows out to other people. Wisdom can't give you that, but God's Holy Spirit can give you that. The Holy Spirit in your life uh, says you can, you can live wisdom. The Holy Spirit says not just this is the right way to live, it's a blessed way to live. And so we come to today. In a few moments, you are about to be invited to give up something that's yours.
time, or money, or annual leave, or rest time. In order to be involved with others in our church, to learn from the global church, talk to people about Jesus, and serve group. So as you hear people talk about different things happening in our church life, this is one possible way to put this into practice. Of course, as you hear people talk about different things you could do, you could have very good practical reasons you can't be involved. So I'm not saying to you, the Ecclesiastes, you must go into summer mission team. That tempting as that would be. But what Ecclesiastes is saying, don't turn down the opportunity to go with others because you prefer me time. Or you want to save money. Or you think I can cope with living in community for a week or two. Those are not good reasons. And I will tell you, you can ask the people who come and talk today, every person who has done one of these things, and some people have gone through them pretty unwillingly, I'd say, <laughs> would say at the end of it, it's not just a good thing to do to obey God and be involved in the Great Commission. It was amazing for me. I made friendships. I joined a community. This wisdom built into creation, that free is a cord that's not easily broken. I experienced it when as a team some pressure was put on the cord. If you want to spend life cultivating and tending to your boundaries, you do that. It will make your life worse. If you're a Christian, you have a different option. You can overflow with generosity and grace to people around you who probably don't deserve it on many occasions. If you decide to stick to your boundaries, you're sticking to the world's systems that create oppression. You'll end up in laziness or overwork. Or, actually, if you're willing to overflow with generosity, what you will find, ironically, that you'll be safer, you'll be warmer. Having other people in your life will be better for you. Let's pray together. Just take a few moments of quiet and reflect on what you've heard before I pray. strands is not easily broken. Heavenly Father, we just want to say in this area we need lots of help. We can be really, each of us, difficult to be around. We can be spiky and lazy and selfish. 
And yet we believe in the power of your Holy Spirit to help us form really deep, strong relationships that make life better. And we want to pray you'd help us to do that as a church. And we want to pray for each team we're going to hear about now that you would do that in them and through them as they overflow with generosity fill their lives with the joy of fellowship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
the art seminars on engaging with difficult questions and engaging with students from different backgrounds and different faith backgrounds and lots of other topics that were really helpful. In the afternoon we will go out into the city to try and engage um, and invite international students to the cafe we were running in the evening. Um, some days were really, really encouraging and we'd have really encouraging conversations but then some days we'd have like, no engagement um, at all or quite hostile responses. But learning to trust God in these situations and trust that he was working through this somehow even though we couldn't see it was a real turning point I found for my faith in Jesus. We would then have free time in the afternoon before meeting back up for a Bible study with our group. And in the busyness of each day with the students and planning everything, it was such a lovely and refreshing time to spend time with the team in engaging in God's words and growing in that together. We then had the cafe, which was the main event of the trip, and that was a great way of building relationships with the students and also an amazing opportunity to share testimonies and talk about Jesus to them in a safe and warm environment. And then to end the night we had an optional Bible discussion for those who wanted to join and it was so amazing to see um, people come back each night because they wanted to hear more about who Jesus was and um, what he'd done. And I'm so grateful that I was given this opportunity to be a part of this team. I've never done a, like a mission trip before and when Mo told me I was going on it, I was quite like anxious and like apprehensive but didn't really know like what to expect. But how I grew personally and how I saw God's hands at work, I never would have thought I was going to experience that in Manchester. <laughs> <laughs> God taught me a lot through these two weeks and gave me multiple opportunities to stretch me and also grow my faith. But the highlight of it was the people I got to meet and the friendships I got to make and I've made my friends for life um, from that mission trip and for, yeah, I'm forever grateful for them as well. Um, there'll also be a chance to uh, visit other 
ministries around Athens and just see all the, all the exciting work that God's doing in, um, in that place. Um, yeah, if you've got any interest, there'll be some posts around the missions table at the end of the service, or uh, come and speak to myself. Um, so a team uh, of us from Christchurch have all been going to Lebanon um, since 2018, really, that's been a long time, um, COVID-dependent and things, and, and typically we go and um, uh, put on uh, basically like primary care medical clinics, and so very kind of basic stuff um, with the help of people from there, and put on football camps, and various other kind of children's work and things. Um, and essentially we've been able to partner with a church in Tyre and just basically doing stuff that they're already doing. So just doing a very, very small part of the work that God has been doing there long before we ever arrived, and I'm sure long after we've ever been there. Um, and so essentially it's through trying to meet very basic physical needs that we're able to love them and show them care that essentially we can get into their spiritual needs and kind of connect them in with the church. Um, so there's lots and lots of Palestinian refugees, Syrian refugees, and even more increasingly over the last five years, um, locals, Lebanese people in that area that have had such um, oppression, uh, you know, poverty, and lack of education, you name it. The country is basically crumbling under lots of different reasons. And I'm sure you've um, yeah, read about them in the news recently that obviously things are even escalating there. And so, unfortunately, I can't stand here and say, yeah, we're going in 2024, um, which we had planned to do uh, because of the current geopolitical situation. Um, but please do come and chat to us more, because basically we'll be thinking about ideas how we can support them this year, and obviously open, plan, God willing to go into the future. Um, it's not just a trip just for medics or just for people who are into football. There are so many different opportunities we've done, kind of, Basic like kids work, they have kid camp, kids summer camps every year, they've even got like an orchestra. There's uh, loads of opportunities for like teaching English, things like that. Um, so there is jobs and opportunities there for anyone. Um, and it's just been such a wonderful blessing to myself personally, as, as Mo said when we go on mission. It's not just us going there to tell people about Jesus, uh, but it has really revitalized my faith and helped that grow as well. Um, and so thank you so much for all your donations over the years as well and that enables us to fulfill that physical need um, but yes it's been such a wonderful blessing and um, to do that so just a very quick few prayer points um, seeing that i can't plug a, a trip this year i'll plug a few prayer points um, obviously with the ongoing tensions there and um, we have friends there that are directly affected by that that essentially missiles and things are, are landing basically uh, in the houses and thankfully, no one we know personally has been injured yet, but please pray for their continued safety. And obviously that affects how they do church and things like that. And the local churches trying to learn how to care for people who have been displaced and affected by it. Um, and also just pray, one of, from a positive note, um, God works in all circumstances and all horrific situations. And that's just a wonderful example in Thai church that we've been learning about. That essentially there's lots of little home churches that are starting to pop up and um, kind of in really dark Hezbollah run areas and God is at work and it's all through like basically it started through a 15 year old girl who came to know Jesus through dreams 
um, and it's just so wonderful to, like, it's nothing to do with what we've been a part of, but just even going and kind of witnessing that and being able to hear those stories has been so encouraging. Um, and so basically they're trying to learn how to disciple people, kind of, they're a bit more up in the mountain in these different kind of villages and how to kind of grow those home churches under that kind of sense of darkness and oppression and things like that. So um, please pray for them and, and God's continue to Thanks. Lord, we thank you because you called us to do this and you've not called us to do it on our own. You are with us, your spirit leads, your spirit guides, and we thank you that you've given us opportunities to be able to reach people all across the world, all the way in the Middle East, and still even close to us right here at home. We thank you for all these ministries. We thank you, Lord, for what they're doing to make your name known to these people. And we pray, Father, that you will use us, Lord, as a church, as individuals, to just take that good news, Lord, to all who need to hear it. In Jesus' name, amen. 